On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. What's up? It's Mike. Enjoying the podcast? Want more? Head on over to patreon.com slash comes a time pod for a bonus episode each week. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time. I'm Mike. I'm O'Teal. We had a really good one today. Uh, Stefan Schwartz. I don't even know how to describe this guy. <laughs> He worked for some very high-level government people and for the Navy and also pioneered remote viewing experiments since the 60s, worked with all the heavyweight remote viewers that were paid by the CIA for 20 years. Um, and just uh, the conversation is just amazing. He, he has this thing about non-local consciousness uh that he was explaining and how it's basically just that consciousness precedes matter and that all everything we see time space sprung up out of consciousness and not vice versa and the empirical scientific data to back that up it's heavy <laughs> he was uh really awesome to chat with and listen to and it was super insightful and it's a lot of the stuff that like you're kind of hearing it and then you go oh yeah makes complete sense um so i hope everybody enjoys it and uh thank you for uh joining us for another great episode and uh we'll catch you next time everyone see you later i want to get that correct i have a not common name. So, O'Teal? No, I, I almost, don't know that I know anybody named O'Teal. So <laughs> where did it come from? It's an ancient Egyptian name. So even uh, Egyptians like my across the street neighbor don't recognize it sometimes because it's not Arabic, you know? No, no. But I like to get names right your, because... One of your I, parents was interested in Egypt? Uh, both, definitely. My parents were like, you know, very much into black history. And they had the most British, my dad's name was William Leslie Burbridge. 
just straight British all the way through. My mom was Carol Orville Smith. I guess she got a French middle name. But um, so they gave each kid an Afri- one African name, except for my sister, Leilani. Well, that's who, very nice. Yeah. So uh, I like to get people's names right because I almost consider just changing my name to Oh What because I tell people. <laughs> 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 that deal is very interesting, actually. That's an awesome name. It really yeah, is. And I super ended unique. up studying quite a lot about ancient Egypt just because of music and the whole 12 system and all this stuff. And it really brings me to why I wanted to have you on as a guest because I had a pretty powerful spiritual experience when I was 40. I was raised against religion very much so. Right. But then afterwards, I was told to like go check it out, but with an open heart, not trying to study it the way I'd done before. Right. Totally mystical, not anything scientific at all. But I did it and it changed my life. And I thought that a lot of what I learned was extremely logical. And I've been trying to develop this concept loosely over the last 10 years called spiritual logic. And then, you know, the algorithm on YouTube popped up Jeffrey Mishlove and this one conversation between you two that just was like, this is it. This guy is what I've been trying to say, but you know so much more of the history and have all the data. So thank you for coming on because this is like the culmination of like maybe since uh, 2010, right? Almost? No, longer than that. It's been a long time coming. So good. Uh, well, good. So you're the the YouTube that I was looking at was called Non-Local Consciousness and Religion, I mm-hmm. believe. Pretty long conversation. And um can you get into what that means, like non-local consciousness? Well, let's just start with that. Non-local consciousness. There is an aspect of, let me say something even at the very beginning. I am a data person. All I care about is data. I'm not a theoretician and I'm not a philosopher. So everything I talk about and will talk about with you is based on experimental data. And what you see when you look at experimental data is that Two things. One is that there is an aspect of consciousness which is not physiologically based. That is, the materialist view is dead brain, no consciousness. But the research in a variety of of disciplines shows that there is an aspect of consciousness that is not physiologically based. That is, it's not brain-based. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it also makes it quite clear that there is a continuity of consciousness. That is, you have an aspect of consciousness that existed before you incarnated, obviously while you're alive, incarnated, but it continues after you die physically. And you look at the near-death research, you look at the reincarnation research, you look at the remote viewing research, you look at the therapeutic intention healing research, all of these things confirm this. The idea that this aspect of consciousness exists outside of space-time, 
and that space and time are limits, are, are informational enrichers, but they are not the parameters that we think of from a materialist point of view. And to, to sort of encapsulate that, let me quote uh, Max Planck, the father of quantum mechanics. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. 
the debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Plunk, who didn't give a lot of interviews, was interviewed in 1931 by the Observer newspaper. And uh, he was then, uh, he and Einstein, as they said, were the two most famous scientists in the world. And the reporter asked him, you know, you and Einstein are the most famous scientists we have. What have you learned? And I don't know what they thought he was going to say, something about atoms and molecules, probably. But what he said instead was, what I have learned is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. You cannot get behind consciousness. Space-time arises from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time. Mm. And Einstein, when asked a similar question, said, well, you have to understand that what people call reality is an optical delusion. <laughs> I love Einstein. So um, what you have going on now is that in a variety of disciplines, the neurosciences, physics, uh, psychology, parapsychology, anthropology, there is a growing recognition that consciousness needs to be integrated into science. It's not the dominant view yet, but it is the emerging view. And I think it's very important because it is also the only way we're going to get through climate change and mm -hmm. preserve civilization as we understand it. Now, can, I, your, can I interrupt you just what? for one second? Because I, I want to make sure we don't go past this. You said, uh, and you're a data guy, and you, you mentioned a lot of research, empirical, like a near-death experience, um, past life, future, uh, I'm sure any number of things that people would consider paranormal. Can you talk about where people can find this research? Because that, what you always hear from the strict materialists is that there is no research and it's all <laughs> woo woo. And you're just like, but then I know like just from being in the UFO stuff, which you could now you can finally admit that like the CIA was paying remote viewers for a very long time, handsomely. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, they say they're not researching. So can you talk about maybe some of these sure. the near death and the past yeah, life sure. or whatever? Well, first of all, uh, go to Google Scholar, which is openly available to you, and search on these words. You search on remote viewing, search on um, uh, reincarnation, search on near-death experiences, and um, thousands of papers will come up. Go to PubMed. That's PubMed. the National yeah. Medical Library that the government maintains. Do a search on any of the, those subjects or search on the names of the re researchers. And um, again, hundreds and hundreds of papers will come up. 
Go to Scopus if you have S-C-O-P-U-S, if you have access. And same thing, go to Science Direct. There are literally thousands of papers. Wow. I mean, I'm writing all this if down. you do a Google on the word meditation, <laughs> you'll get something like 1,200 papers will come up. Wow. If you do a search on remote viewing, uh, there'll be a, well over 1,000 papers will come up. Um, I have been doing, I'm one of the people that created remote viewing. Remote viewing is a protocol, a technique. It is the only one that has gone from a laboratory protocol to an avocational interest. There are thousands of people that do it. It's got conferences and magazines and discussion lists. And, you know, it's a hobby like scuba diving or skydiving. Some people get paid pretty well for it, like Robert McMonagall. I heard you need to cough up ten grand just to get him. Joe McMonagall and uh, Joe, Joe yeah. was yes. Joe is uh, has been a remote viewer. He started in the SRI program. I would not do classified research because I felt that anything that we knew about consciousness ought to be made available to everybody. I so would I turned down enormous amounts of funding. Uh, because it was classified. Uh, instead, I worked principally in creating re remote viewing in using it to find archaeological sites like Cleopatra's Palace, uh, Mark Anthony's Timonium, uh, the Lighthouse of Pharos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, one of Christopher Columbus's caravels, uh, the, the Brigliander. Yeah. I mean, again, wow. all, all of this is published. It's all available. It's all uh, meticulously documented. In fact, you can go to my personal website, stephanaschwartz.com, and you can see films. I made movies of it. Mm. So, so just to be clear for do it. So just to be clear for the fans, so they understand. You found all these things using remote viewing, all these yes, incredibly I famous. I found them all using remote viewing, but I ran a parallel search using electronic devices, side scan sonar, proton precession magnetometer, ground penetrating radar, to see if you could find them electronically, and you could not. <laughs> but the remote viewers could. Yes, ah. but the remote viewers, and the remote viewers what you learn with remote viewing is, first of all, there are no secrets. I think that's yeah. what scares governments, mm. uh, particularly uh, Congress people, because if you're having an affair, remote viewers can find out about it. <laughs> well, yeah. and a lot worse things than that. That's uh, what I was wondering. Worse things than that. Yes, absolutely. Like, I always case, wondered, wouldn't the remote viewers have some kind of ethical conflict? You know, the CIA has done a lot of bad stuff and they well, would have to know about it you know i don't know i've always wondered if they i think ingo swan mentioned something about like having to cut it off you know well um as i said i wouldn't do classified research for just that reason yeah. but uh, remote viewing is an ability everybody has access to this non-local aspect of consciousness um, and in fact, we can take religion, since you brought that up in the beginning. 
if you look at religion across all of human history and across all cultures, what you discover, if you put away the, the scriptures, the dogmas, and you just look at religion as a process that humans, no matter where they live, no matter when they live, no matter what culture in which they live, they get involved with and create religions. And if you look at religions, the, the main religions of the world today, what you discover is, first of all, all these religions start because a single individual has a non-local consciousness experience. Mm. Jesus goes into the desert to meditate, and, and uh, excuse me, uh, goes to John who baptizes him. Yes. And then he goes into the desert to meditate. And he has a revelation and begins his teaching. Uh, the Buddha goes to uh, an ashram and learns the technique of meditation and begins his teaching. Uh, Muhammad goes to the sacred cave of Hira. He has a non-local consciousness experience and begins his teaching. So it all begins with a single individual who has a non-local consciousness experience. And then you will note that they all learn the technique of meditation, and that becomes the basis from which they teach. Now, why meditation? And the answer is because meditation is the key to opening to non-local consciousness. Intention, the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness is the key to the whole business. That's why they teach meditation in martial art dojos in Japan, in Tibetan lamaseries in Tibet, in Hindu temples in India, and on and on in Catholic seminaries. Meditation teaches how to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. Because most of what we think about and most of our consciousness is tied up with our sensorial impressions. It's too hot, it's too cold. Oh, I like that color, I don't like that color. It's too noisy, it's too quiet, whatever. Most of what we're doing, what we call consciousness, is processing sensory impressions. Remote viewing is a matter of, or, or opening to non-local consciousness is a matter of, of developing a technique and there are a number of them, for allowing the sense impressions to retreat into the background and to allow this non-local part of consciousness to emerge. In religion, they call it the still small voice. Yes. So, okay, in religion, let's start with, we'll go back to that. First of all, you have the idea of the soul. Now, whether it's you have one God, multiple gods, goddesses, it doesn't matter. They All these religions have this idea of this enduring aspect of consciousness. This is the continuity of consciousness, we would call it in science. But in any case, the idea that there is an aspect of consciousness that's outside of space-time, the soul. Um, and then, again, let's stay with religion for a moment. Religions all pick a special place. There's always the place, whether it's a temple or a, 
a, a synagogue or a church or an Etruscan sacred oak grove or whatever, there's the special place. Now, why is there a special place? I mean, why do people gather for religious ceremonies? Why don't they just do it at home? And the answer is, and we know this from the neurosciences, is that when people join together, and uh, they've shown, uh, particularly a researcher named Andrew Newberg, who's a, neuro a neuroscientist, neurologist, he hooked people up to EEGs to monitor their brain waves. And what he discovered was that when people join together in a common intention, and you'll notice that when you go into a, 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 a begin a religious service, there's a statement of intention. You know, it's the Nicene Creed if you're a Christian. It's a, a statement of the belief in voodoo gods if you're a voodoo practitioner. Whatever. Does it, when you get past the cultural details of it, the, the, as I say, the dogmas and all that, the rituals, what you find is these commonalities that occur again and again in all the religions. So you go to a special place at a special time. And we also know that this special place business is important because in remote viewing research, what we've discovered is that it is easier for a remote viewer to see Chartres Cathedral, for instance, than a French warehouse of the same size. Now, why is that? And the answer is because Chartres Cathedral has been the focus of intentioned awareness mm -hmm. in a highly emotional state for hundreds of years. Whereas people drive by warehouses, they don't pay any attention to them. Mm. So you've got, Okay, I'm going to have to stop. I'll, I'll get rid of it, but I got it. Sorry, it's totally fine. It. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, okay. My wife got it. <laughs> anyway, so picking up, you um, you go to a special place because the act of doing that, of focusing on that special place, informationally enriches that. It becomes the word that the proper word is it becomes more numinous. Mm -hmm. uh, Jung, Carl Jung, uh, coined uh, the, the basic understanding we have of numinosity. He said, Numina, by which he meant information, are psychic entities. They are outside of space time. And these acts of intentioned observation make places sacred. That's how they become sacred, is that many people in a highly emotional state focus their attention very singularly on that location. So you gather at a certain time, at a certain place, in a special place, and you join together, and then there is some singing, dancing, chanting. Why? Because as Newberg found, when people get together and they sing together, chant together, dance together, uh, drum together, depending on which religion it is, what happens is all the brains synchronize. Mm. And so the intention is magnified by the fact that all of these brains of the people involved all synchronize and they all are moving in the same way. And that prepares people. So at some point in the service, there is a period 
where some, not all, and not always, of the people have a non-local conscious experience, which is witnessed by the others in the community, which confirms the reality of their religion. You know, if you're a Christian, you're speaking in tongues, you're prophesying. If you're a voodoo practitioner, you're speaking as one of the gods. If you, uh, there's also a period of healing where we hold people in healing, in prayer together. Because, again, there's a linkage of intentioned consciousness. And then at the end of the service, there is a restatement of intention and commitment and a reassignment of gathering together again. So if you, if you look at religions, what you see is that these same sort of empirically developed understandings developed across all the cultures and at all times, that if you do these certain things, the joining together, the special place, the chanting, the drumming, the letting some but not all of the community have a public non-local consciousness experience. And then it gets down even finer. We've done research which, for instance, shows that just looking at words and how they're written makes a difference, it makes them sacred. Why do totems or relics become sacred? And the answer is because people focus intentioned awareness on them. Mm -hmm. And again, you go back to Plong, consciousness is causal and fundamental. Mm -hmm. And so acts of consciousness literally change reality. You know, something I, th I saw earlier maybe it was last night, that speaks to exactly this, because it, I think it was, it was uh, Jeffrey Mishlove. He had on a guy named John B. Alexander, who I gather was a military guy. Yes, he's, uh, I know John well. He and, was a uh, colonel in the Army. Well, he took his wife to uh, Brazil, and they did, I forget which branch of the African... You know, I know there's Candoble and Vodun and all this different stuff. Off the top of my head, I don't remember, but it's what we would call a voodoo yeah. ceremony. But it was a specific branch. And he said, you know, he had contacts with, uh, pretty high contacts with government people there. He was there as about three or four hundred bazillions and only about maybe eight or ten white people. His wife went up to, I, you know, there was some sort of invitation off offered and I assume that she needed some healing of something of some sort. And when she touched this thing, something jumped into her. She was writhing around on the floor and going bananas. Now I don't think she was a practicer of this religion. No, Almost but she certainly was, was part not. of a community of people who were all focused at that moment. And it had that experience. And she didn't even remember it. She did not even remember it. And so John Alexander's like, I can tell you, that's not my wife. Like, she's, she doesn't usually do that, you know. Everybody else thought it was perfectly normal. Yes. But, you know, there, she was like, and the fact that she didn't remember it, so you didn't even have to be a believer going into it to, no. like, you know, for it to happen to you. Yeah. He said, basically... Where it's all semantics, but he was like she was possessed, and what we would call being possessed. 
Yes. Yes. Well, that, as I said, that's an example of exactly what I'm talking about. You go to the special place at the special time. You have the special ceremony, whatever it is. And there's that period of dancing, chanting, drumming, whatever. And then some, not all, and not always, of the people there have this non-local consciousness experience. And as I say, you could go to evangelical churches and listen to people speaking in tongues or prophesying. You could go to another kind of service, and they hold people in healing and, you know, laying on of hands, that sort of thing. All of these same elements, these same things that I'm describing, the special place, the special time, the special ceremony, the linking of intention consciousness, the period of dancing, drumming, chanting, the time when some but not all of the community has this experience. But then, as I was saying, we have also known, again, for based again on scientific research, we know that literally the shape of the letters that are the focus of this intention consciousness gives them a numinosity. So what I, was, what I wanted to say was, what all of this is telling us is that we are dealing with an information phenomenon, that the act of intention consciousness creates in the non-local domain what I would call information architectures. That is, people hold common interests. Now, we also know, by the way, that whenever 10% of a cohort, whether it's a church group or a nation, change in consciousness, the whole cohort has to accommodate to that. Uh, mm-hmm. we, when, uh, research that was done at Van Rensselaer Polytech showed that when 10% of a cohort, and let me give you some examples of how that plays mm-hmm. out. If you do a Google, uh, uh, Google keeps track of the words people search on, and you can find them out. If you look about, oh, it's now about five, maybe almost six years ago, there was an enormous shift from gay to LGBT and then LGBTQ. Now, why did that happen? The president didn't go on television and say, we're now going to stop saying gay and we're going to start saying LGBT. When did the word Negro disappear mm-hmm. and the word black appeared? What, and, why? Did, did anybody pass a law? Did anybody, <laughs> did some major figure stand up and say, we're going to do this? No. What happens is individuals change their consciousness. Mm. And when enough of them do that, then the consciousness of the whole culture changes because culture is the creation of individual consciousness. I'll give you another example. When I was a boy and you went to somebody's house, there was uh, an ashtray in the coffee table in the living room and a pack of cigarettes and one of those lighters your mother told you not to fool with. And so everybody had that. You don't see that anymore. Why is that? Did someone pass a law that you couldn't do it? No, it was because the consciousness of the culture changed as a result of individuals making a new choice. 
you kind of see that now where it's uh, phones. I imagine if someone was to take a uh, a percentage of the time that the phone is actually used to speak to someone else versus texting with someone else. And mm-hmm. now it's texting isn't even now it's like you can hit a button to thumbs up a thing instead of. So it's like the actual course of conversation yeah. is changing, too. And it's the no one said, changed. hey, by the way. We're not calling anymore. We're just texting. So it's very interesting that yeah. talking in emojis. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, what you what I'm trying to say is that consciousness is, as Plunk said, causal and fundamental. Mm. And when you understand that, then you realize that to change things, you need to change individuals' consciousness. And when you do that or individuals choose to change their consciousness, then the entire culture changes to accommodate that. Mm. And so, That's why the uh, authoritarian governments always go after the artists and the poets first exactly. and the philosophers, because they exactly. know that might get out of hand. Yes, Could I, exactly. Could I That's ask you- why they try to get control of the, in, the dispersion yeah. of information, mm. or increasingly, misinformation or disinformation yes. you can manipulate a culture by getting a large number of people to believe something well yeah absolutely we've seen that um i have a question yeah. for you about the actual act of the remote viewing and the preparation leading up to it like for instance you were t- we were talking about how you know, you have a, a a ceremony or you have a um a ritual. Was there a certain like could you walk us through what it was like for let's say the twenty fifty experiment, the remote viewers? If I'm one, I show up day one. What is it what is the process like? Do we go through a group meditation together? Do we do you say I want you to focus on twenty fifty wherever you are? Like what's the process for those viewers? Well, it's uh, pretty straightforward actually, quite simple. Um, I encourage people that there are a number of uh, uh, there are a number of ways of doing it. Let me stress again: remote viewing is a technique; it's a protocol. We created it back in the early '70s. I started in '68. Uh, Russ Targ and Hal Putoff, Ed May, they started in about '70, 70, '72. The three big labs that did this were SRI, Mobius, my lab, and Princeton University, uh, the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Group, and other people. But those were the three big labs that that literally created remote viewing as a technique. Mm -hmm. So there are several techniques. There are people that commercialize it and say, well, this is the technique, or this is the special secret technique. And but that's, it's not true. It's just, that's commercialization. So in order to do this, what you need to do is to get to a relaxed state. So if you and I were going to do a a remote viewing mic or OTL, you would come in and we would sit down or, or we just do it on zoom. I do it all the time. And we'd sit in meditation for a few minutes just to calm ourselves, to allow all the sense impression data to retreat into the background. And then I would say to you, okay, I want you to go forward in time to, I'm going to show you a target as an example. 
or I would like you to locate, uh, you know, the buried building or whatever, but let's just say a target. So I'm going to show you a picture uh, in an hour. And an image is coming into your mind now that um, when you see the picture, you will know that you have had a hit. So could you make me a little drawing of that picture that comes into your mind? Could you describe it for me? And then I would ask you a series of questions and you draw or write. Now, the interesting thing is, at the time that you're doing this, there is no picture. It doesn't yeah. exist yet as a target. <clears throat> Only <laughs> after I get your data, you either send it to me or, uh, you know, you take a picture with your smartphone and send me the data if we're doing a Zoom or whatever, yeah. a Skype. Uh, only after I get your data, but before I look at it, I go to my random number generator, randomnumber.org, and uh, random.org, and I get it. Let's say I have uh, 100 targets. So first of all, that's a pool of targets. That's all the possible futures there could be in these targets. So I ask it to pick two numbers whatever, let's say 8 and 34, and, um, and then I show that to the judge, the two targets, or five targets, or seven targets, that, that depends on what kind of statistics you're trying to do, and um, I, I give the judge five targets, or two targets, seven targets, whatever, and I say, would you look at uh, this? Uh, Mike and O'Teal have, have each done a remote viewing independently of the target. Um, and would you please compare their data? Is it most like target one, target two, target three, or whatever many targets there are? And after the judge has made his judgment, then I go back to random.org and I say, uh, of the numbers that you originally picked, pick the one that becomes the target. So the only way that, that you can do this mm. successfully is you have to go into the future. Yeah. Because at the time that you're doing it, there is no target that has been designated. Yeah. So this is, this is what we call in science pure triple blind. I don't know <laughs> the answer. You don't know the answer. In fact, no one on earth knows the answer because the answer hasn't been created yet. Oh, I like it. I want to try What we learned from this is that it is as easy for person, a person to describe something that's going to be selected in the future in an hour as it is to describe something that happened 2,000 years ago. I mean, when I do the archaeological work, what I would do is I, I would get a map of the area I wanted to search, and I would reduce it to a blueprint so that all the colors were removed. So it's just this sort of bluish grayish and the white. Yeah. And I would take all the names off of the target so that it's just basically some lines. I wouldn't tell you where it was, and I would say to you, each, uh, if I was interviewing you each independently, I would say, Mike or O'Teal, I want you to go over this map. And my first question is, is 
Cleopatra's palace uh, to be found within the confines of this map. And you'd go over it and you'd say yes. And I would say, well, then, would you make as small a little circle as possible uh, as to the exact location? And then I would say to you, okay, you've now located it. Now, would you please describe for me what I will find when I go there? And we know from the research that people can describe things down to five-eighths of an inch. They're the tiny, it's as small wow. as you like. That's wow. so cool. So then I would say to you, okay, would you uh, describe for me what I'm going to find there? And if you said, well, it's buried under the ground. I would say, well, yes, how, how deep will I have to dig? Now, you it's hard to get, non-local consciousness doesn't work very well with analytical terms. So I would, if I were doing it as an experiment, I would say to you, um, you're standing on top of the thing you are describing. Um, where does your head come up in terms of the surface of the earth does this the are does it come up to your waist up to your shoulders up to your chest when that was over i would then measure you and that would give me the depth because if i said how many feet down is it that it, that's harder for remote viewers right yeah that's that's too that's too earth right? yeah that's too You're working visually yeah 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 yeah, And then I would say, what color is this? Or, or, I mean, to give you an example, and you can go to, for instance, stephanieschwartz.com, and I, I make films of these too. So, but before we get to that part, I would also then, uh, once I had your data and I had the location, and what I'm looking for is I have like five to seven viewers, I'm looking for what we call consensus zones. Did you and O'Teal pick the same place? Hmm. Maybe you picked three or four places to locate something, but you all picked, or most of you picked the same place. That's the consensus zone. So then I would have a separate expert who was a specialist in that search that area electronically to see if he or she uh, could find the thing that you were describing. And to give you an actual example, which you can see, uh, I was working in Egypt and I wanted to dive in the Eastern Harbor because that's where I thought Cleopatra's palace was and Mark Anthony's palace. And uh, the University of Alexandria went to the governor and said, you know, this is all nonsense. It can't possibly be real. And so they, they agreed, the governor of Alexandria said to me, would you be willing to do a test which they control? I said, sure. So they said to me, the university, can you locate a particular building in a buried city about 40 kilometers from here where we have begun to do um, uh, archaeological excavation. And so, um, unbeknownst to me, they had already had it surveyed by ground-penetrating radar by the University of Delft. And um, 
So I had two remote viewers, Hella Hammond and, and George McMullen. Um, I took them out into the desert and I, I said to them, okay, I want you to locate this building. And the Egyptian archaeologist, a guy named Fakarani, knelt down and he drew a little picture and he said, what I want you to find is a building that has more than one room and that has a tile floor a mosaic tile floor. And um, so we're searching an area of about 1,700 square kilometers. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, at, it's, and it's about 114 degrees in the, out in the <laughs> desert. Yeah. And um, after about three hours of walking around, George says, okay, I know where I want to go. So he said, we're getting back in the car. It's, it, we can't walk to it. We'll have to drive to it. So we get in the car and the Egyptian archaeologists are all going snicker, snicker, snicker. <laughs> and we go out and George says, stop here. We get out of the car, snicker, 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 because, of course, I don't know this yet, but they have already had it surveyed and there's nothing there, they say. And George is walking along. You can see it in the movie. And uh, George says, OK, I'm walking over this building. It has three rooms. I say to him, George, could you stake out the corners for me? Corners are, of course, very important. Oh, yes, I can do that. And he describes the building as being Byzantine, not Roman. Hmm. Snicker, snicker, snicker. All the buildings they think are Roman. And, um, and he says it's about three feet down, and he sort of looks at his legs and says, you know, it's about up to my knee. And um, this is a building that was Christian, uh, not Roman, snicker, 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 and goes on. And then he goes away, and I bring Hella in, and um, I ask her to do the same thing, locates the same place. She sits down. She says, well, there's three rooms. We're sitting in the on the really on the sand in the desert. Underneath me, it's it's about about three feet, four feet. Um, there are three rooms, and oh, there's this weird column that's in the middle of the second room, and there's something about it got very hot. But it was not built by the people that built the building. It came later. Snicker, snicker, snicker. So. Anyway, they do that. We bring George back. I say, George, now, can you stake? You said you could stake it out. Could you stake it out for me? So he puts stakes in the ground, and, uh, and that's where we're going to dig. And uh, Fakharani, the Egyptian archaeologist, says to me, the University of Guelph surveyed this area. There's nothing there. I said, I don't care. That's where <laughs> we're going to dig. So we dig at three feet, a little over three feet and a few inches. The building begins to emerge that's not supposed to be there, but there it is. It has three rooms. Uh, in the middle of the second room, there is this weird column, which turns out to have been a, a kind of oven that was built hundreds of years later after the city had been abandoned and the Bedouins had built this oven and they used it to cook bread. And uh, when we get wow. down to the bottom, George has drawn a picture of these little tiles. He says they're red, black, and white. 
They're smooth on one side and they have white plaster on the bottom. And uh, they're about five eighths of an inch. And they were most of them were taken away, but you'll still find enough that you can prove there was a mosaic floor there. And then we get down and there they are. And then we go a little bit deeper to the to the uh, uh, foundations and you can see the Christian consecration marks. It's wow. a Byzantine structure, not a Roman structure. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at Smart Wool. For more than 25 years, Smart Wool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They are here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. What's up, everyone? I'm Mike. And I'm O'Teal. And these are our Sunset Lake CBD gummies that are almost gone. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned business that ships CBD products directly from their farm to your door. For years, Sunset Lake was a Vermont dairy farm producing milk for Ben and Jerry's ice cream. In 2018, they diversified and started growing hemp for CBD. And with a product for everyone, they offer pre-rolls, hemp cigars, and hemp flowers, as well as tinctures, gummies, and CBD-crafted coffee to help with stress, aches, and pains. Sunset Lake CBD saves you money by shipping high-quality CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Want to know what I've been using a lot of, O'Teal? This salve with the arnica Uh, on my my old bones. You get back from a show and you got tore ankle, rub a little bit of this on there. You're ready to dance the next day. And you know, Sunset Lake uh, comes a time listeners can visit sunsetlakecbd.com and use promo code TIME for 20% off of their purchase. That's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code TIME. And tell them we sent you. Bam, 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 bam. And then you bam, went running bam, right bam. back. Yes, then you exactly. went running right back to the river and dove in and said, "We're and, on." And, and yeah. found Cleopatra, hella Hammett. I've heard about her. She is no. Wow, that's joke. phenomenal. That's hella that's Hammett, really. Does does is there a, like it, does someone know like you know in talking about it? You kind of said that if O'Teal and I were to do it, I have to be honest. I'd love to try, but. Is, is there a way to know whether or not, like, is it, are, are, do some folks have it? Some don't. Is it people who meditate most, and have most more people can do experience it. in transcendence? Like, you know, from your perspective, I mean, you know, from the beginning. We know from the research that um, about 11% of people are particularly good at it. Almost everybody can do it to some degree, but it's like any other human skill. You know, there are, it's a bell curve. There's a few people at one end who are really, really good at it. The Hellas, the Georges, Joe McMonagall. Ingo. There are a few people at the other end who just don't seem to be able to get it. They tend to be highly analytical people who just don't have much imagination. Yeah, that's it. But most people fall in the middle, somewhere okay. in the yeah. middle. So, um, 
my guess would be, I don't mean to have to do it, I'd have to do the experiments with you, but that uh, you could do it. As I say, most people can, can get at least some information non-locally. Meditators do better than non-meditators. Again, mm. the why? Because meditation teaches the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. Right. I try to spend as much time in that space as possible. I do float tanks. I do meditate twice a day. Um, anything I can to spend as much time away from Earth <laughs> as possible. So I, I, and I believe that there's, yeah, sometimes you're kind of like, what it, Otil, you may have said it earlier that like sometimes people do experience some of these things, but they're not attuned to it. So it blows right by them. Or even taught to ignore it or discount it. Like what Jeffrey Mishlove was saying about, oh, it's immaterial. It's mm. nonsense. And it's like, yeah, so people, I dream into the future, but I learned to lucid dream from a Carlos Castaneda book. So I yeah. remember my dreams. I think all these people that have deja vus are dreaming into the future, but they don't remember their dreams. Mm -hmm. But I do. So when the deja vu feeling happens, I look around at things that I picked out that are unusual in this minor, completely banal moment. So I need to pick something out, you know, even people that I haven't met yet, routinely. Sure. And I'm like, I always tell me, I feel like I know you already. But you know what? this 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 guy that interview uh, that Mishlove interviewed Lynn Buchanan, he yeah. said something so cool. He said, "Your nerves, our nervous system, are strands that carry electrical energy. That's basically an antenna." And he said, "Our whole body is an antenna, and the ninjas have a name for it, sake nijitsu." And so that's he thinks that this antenna is how you feel like. If someone were to blindfold you and take you into Auschwitz, you would be like, hey, man, this is I'm getting a dark feeling here because your antenna could pick it up. <laughs> you know? Well, you have to be uh, I, I would qualify that. First of all, we know that non-local consciousness is not electromagnetic in nature. Yeah. And we know that because I did an experiment back in the 70s uh, in which. I got people to locate an unknown wreck on the sea floor, and then I put people in the submarine and asked them to describe where other people were hiding uh, in Northern California. Now, wow. the important thing here is, in the early 1970s, the general feeling was that there were signals, senders, receivers, and that... Um, Non-local consciousness was probably uh, what's called ELF, extreme low frequency electromagnetic radiation. Yeah. And uh, papers were written about that. Uh, Michael Persinger wrote a big paper arguing it was ELF. A, at the time, I was the special assistant to the chief of naval operations. And so I had been briefed that the Navy was doing a project called ELF, or then Project Sanguine, because they wanted to use ELF to communicate with the missile submarines without having them come to the surface. And so how do you do that? See, if they came close to the surface, the Soviet satellites would pick up the heat from the nuclear reactors. And so they, they wanted the submarines to stay deeply submerged. But the question was, how deep will electromagnetic radiation penetrate into seawater? 
And what they discovered, they got a very specific depth. And they also discovered that the only thing it could possibly be was ELF radiation, because everything else was, was filtered out by the seawater. And so I wanted to do a submarine experiment. Uh, I read this uh, Russian work that was done by a man named uh, Vasiliev, Leonid Vasiliev, and he had, was a very good researcher and had published in some secret thing. I don't know how the CIA got hold of it, but anyway, a friend of mine was the head of the CIA and he sent me these papers that were translated. I don't know how he got them, but, and which Vasiliev was trying to answer the question, is this electromagnetic? And he finally got, he put people down into caves and down into mine shafts. They put them into Faraday cages, which shield electromagnetic radiation. And he finally published in his papers, it had to be ELF if it was electromagnetic. So, and then again, there was the Persinger's question. And so the only way to really answer the question would be to put a person in a situation where they were shielded from ELF. And the only way to do that was put them in a submarine. Mm. And I went to Hyman Rickover, who's the father of the American Nuclear Navy, and I asked him if he would let me do this experiment. And he said, no, he didn't want to do it because the media would make a big fuss about it. And there'd be a lot of discussion about the secret missile submarines, and the Navy wasn't interested in that conversation. So he wouldn't do it. And I didn't think it would ever get done because uh, Vasiliev tried to do it in Russia. And for whatever reason, he couldn't do it either. But then I went out to uh, California to take a fellowship and, and two friends of mine had retired from the Navy and taken over the Institute of Marine and Coastal Studies at the University of Southern California. And they offered me a submarine. Nice. And therefore, I was able to do this experiment and demonstrated that it was not ELF. It was not electromagnetic. So it's not like it's your it, the nervous system is not an antenna like yeah. a radio antenna <laughs> yeah um that that would not be correct we know for instance that it is possible to describe things that were buried for thousands of years that nobody knows about they may know they exist but they don't everybody agrees they don't know where they are and you can't explain that electromagnetically the brain is yeah. only capable of generating enough power to write a to light a little tiny LED bulb. Yeah, it's like a five watt we generate or something yeah, like that. Yeah, maybe a little less. Yes. Yeah. But so you couldn't send. You don't have enough uh, electric power to send out a signal. So this uh, whole idea that yeah. that people had that that what was going on in non-local consciousness uh, uh, phenomena was some sort of electromagnetic phenomenon is just not correct. I mean, people but still it does, say it. They still it talk about senders and receivers and I'm sending yeah. a signal and blah, 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 blah. But that's not what's going on. Um, I mean, we know that, again, from the research. Mm. What seems to be going on is much more like a Google search. You know, you hold the mm. intention to locate something. That's like, the, that's like doing a Google search. You know, you put in the search terms and Google goes and searches all of the millions and millions of sites and everything and comes back and gives you a couple of places to look. 
In the same way, when I do a remote viewing experiment and I ask you to locate something, that intention that we share together, and we are linked, by the way, both the researchers and the remote viewers are players in the success. In the intention. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? Everybody's a player in the intention contract. So I ask you to do this location. Well, that's like giving you a search term for a Google search. Only you're the Google search technique. It sounds like the Akashic Records that I hear of, and we're yeah. the... We're the internet somehow are <laughs> are not we have access to this non-local pool of info. Yes, the Akashic record is a cultural interpretation of the idea that non-local consciousness um, is that we are dealing with an information phenomenon. Mm -hmm. That all of the information that ever was is available. Yeah. And we know that people can describe things down to tiny little details. You know, I was I with the Brig Leander, we were looking for this ship, the Brig Leander, and people were describing these little bitty glass ball a, a little glass vials with powdered medicine in them, which we found. Now mm. they were doing this from from Rome, from yeah. Sydney, Australia. Uh, just giving me the remote viewing data and describing these little tiny things, which we later discovered exactly where they put them. So how do they do that? Where is that information? Yeah. So right? it's, yeah. the answer is it's in the non-local domain, what yeah. in certain religions they call the Akashic record, but that's what it is. So it's almost kind of like the brain is limited non-local consciousness isn't it's almost kind of like non-local consciousness is the cloud and we yeah. have like a limited yes. hard a limited you know gigabyte uh yes. hard drive yes. that we're able to now what i'd like uh, to ask you tell us what i would limited. like to ask you is uh <laughs> do you feel in our in our human you know in our vessel here in our in our you know, the, maybe, you know, I, I've, I've listened to and read some things about how like consciousness maybe doesn't necessarily have to reside in the head, you know, like, are there other parts of the body that you feel like someone will maybe feel something in their chest or in their heart or in their, you know, where does their consciousness draw from? Well, it's, again, you want to think about consciousness, not as a place, but as a information reality, maybe that's the way to describe it. I mean, increasing research is showing that there is something that that part of your consciousness is in your gut. Part of it is in your heart. That neurosciences are beginning to describe how certain feelings and reactions and controls in the body are lodged, as I say, in the gut or in the heart. But I think a better, clearer way to think about it is that you are a, a creation of consciousness. Um, I mean, the research suggests to us, the reincarnation research, for instance, suggests very strongly that you pick your parents, you pick your socioeconomic yeah. group, you pick your race. You, all of that is designed to give you a set 
of circumstances that will allow you to make choices that will create information patterns. Wow. And so you literally control your genetics. You, yeah. you choose your parents, you choose your genetic formation. Um, we know, for instance, again, from the research that in meditation, you can alter the structure of the telomeres, the, the, the part of the DNA that uh, it can be altered by meditation. We know, for instance, that individuals come across between lives they, with scar tissue or birthmarks mm -hmm. from places where they experienced wounds that killed them uh, or where people mark them in a, as they're dying. They create some kind of mark, and then when they're born, Again, they bear. Wow. They have a birthmark they or a more. scar tissue or a, amazing uh, some kind of marking at that exact location. Um, again, what we're dealing with is the continuity of consciousness. That consciousness exists prior to birth, during life, and continues after physical death. There is an aspect of you, the eternal self what religion calls the soul, and that all of this consciousness is interlinked and interdependent. And the, and the importance of that is that we have reached a point in our culture, in our societies, that developed as a result of a view of reality in which the earth is seen as a kind of exploitable bank account. Yeah. that we are separate from, we have dominion over it and are separate from it. And in fact, the reality is that we are part of the matrix of consciousness, and that all consciousness is interlinked and interdependent. And that once you recognize that, you develop different kinds of technologies than when your view is the earth is just an exploitable bank account. Absolutely. Or well, you yeah. can't have enemies anymore. Yeah. Because then you're just hurting yourself. Well, and also, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, you have those moments where even if it's you're geographically in a place where, say, you're at the top of a, you know, 13 or 14,000 foot peak and you look out and you're like, I'm tiny. <laughs> this place is massive. And you have that new technology that's like, oh, boy, yeah. I'm a piece of a larger thing instead yes. of, you know, when you're in traffic and you're beeping the horn yeah. at the person in front of you. Yeah. Uh, that's, I'm totally on board to with realize that. realize that consciousness is causal and fundamental, your whole view of the world changes because then you don't see, for instance, I just read an article this morning about the, how the fisheries are collapsing because of overfishing, yeah. Yeah. because they don't really conceive of the fish as in any way really connected with them. They're just exploitable assets that you can use. Yeah. And we are destroying the fisheries because we overfish. Well, once you begin to see consciousness as causal and fundamental and that you are part of the matrix of consciousness, you stop doing things like that. Right. You don't yeah. use carbon energy. You stop you, fracking. <laughs> yes. You treat people equally. You don't. Yeah. Race is not an appropriate issue. The gender right. is not an appropriate issue to 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 be prejudiced against something because we are all part of this network of life 
And once yeah. you get that, you realize that, oh, I'm, I'm part of this. And not only am I affecting them, they're affecting me. And also, and this is very important. If you look at creative geniuses, whether they are in the arts or in the sciences, what you discover is that the source of their creative genius, as they will tell you, is that they open to non-local consciousness. Yeah. Tesla says he's walking across Central Park and he has a vision of the electric motor. And he goes back to his lab and he says to his engineers, I want you to make this for me, not prototype it, just make this. They make it for him, he turns it on, it's an electric motor. Yeah. Poincaré yeah. says, uh, one of the great mathematicians of history, I'm walking across the road and I have a vision of my mathematics. Descartes says, I have three dreams in Ulm, Germany in 1619 that reveal this mathematics that I'm famous for. Uh, Einstein says, I saw the theories of relativity as I was whiling away an afternoon in a canoe after I had been sick. Mm. Uh, Brahms, Beethoven, Mozart say they heard the music. I they were in an that. altered state of consciousness, and they heard the music and just wrote it down. It's amazing. So this idea that opening to non-local consciousness is a critical component of creative genius. When you look at people who are creative, acknowledged by history to be creative geniuses, over and over again, they will tell you, I had this experience. It's a non-local consciousness experience. I was walking across uh, with Jonas Salk uh, at the Salk Institute, and wow. I said, where did you get the idea for the, the vaccine? He said, oh, I saw it in a dream. <laughs> yeah. The conduit. Science. The conduit. Yeah. yeah, everybody thinks it's so separate <laughs> from... That's beautiful. The spiritual realm, and it's not. Can you talk? I know I don't. We usually only do about an hour, and I don't want to keep you. We really appreciate your time. Of course. But there's one thing I want to ask you about that I want our fans to hear. You were talking about some more of these experiments that were done, and I think it was someone, I don't know if it was a particular religion, but it was basically a sick person laying on of hands. They were healed, but you also put a vial of water in the patient's hand? Uh, no, not the patient. I, uh, yeah. I, I, I wondered, why is water so much a part of sacred experiences? Mm. Why? How about Coca-Cola? Well, we're mostly water, our bodies. The planet's yes. mostly water. Yeah, those are the, that's the sort of obvious thing. But I thought, why is it? Does something happen to water when is it, it is exposed to therapeutic mm. intention? Mm. You know, the priest comes in and blesses the water. It's now holy yes. water. You're going to yeah. get baptized or you're going to get submerged or you're whatever, whatever yeah. the ceremony is. So yeah. in order to test that, I had people do healings while they had little vials of, of very, very pure water in little glass bottles, and I, they were held in a little cloth tube on the palm of their hand, and they did 
whatever kind of healing they wanted. Um, you know, everything from channeling space people to evangelical Christian healing to Reiki. You, you do Reiki. You know, whatever. It didn't make any yeah. difference. You, you see, all what happens is cultures develop culturally appropriate ways of expressing these aspects of consciousness. But the but the technique is a cultural affectation or a cultural creation. It's really dealing with something more fundamental that is and so different cultures develop different ways of doing it, but it's all the same thing when you get down to the to the short part. That's so what I always say I we get people doing these healings. And then I used infrared spectrophotometry to do an analysis of the water compared to control samples that that had exactly the same history except for being exposed to the healing part. And what we discovered was that there was a very specific change in the molecular structure of the water that was exposed to healing. And that wow. that correlated also with whether the patient, the recipient of the therapeutic intention, had a healing experience. Wow. Also, if they weren't healed, then the water didn't show the change. So the the patient has to be in alignment to accept it. Or? No, I don't know that the patient needs to be in alignment. Although I think there is a kind of linkage or deal between the healer and the recipient. No, I mean some of the people who were recipients, you know, basically they were just lying on a table, a, a massage table, while the healer was working. We filmed it. And um, and we had a five minute bottle, a ten minute bottle of water, a fifteen minute bottle of water. Mm. What we thought we would see was that the longer the exposure, the greater the change. That was not true. It didn't matter whether it was the five minute, the ten minute, or the fifteen mm. minute bottle, which suggests that time in the healing is not the key. The key is the linkage, the intention, and that it occurred. But these changes in the water. In the molecular structure of the bottle, uh, water in having to do with the HO bonding relationship, how you know one atom of uh, one molecule of water and links with another and 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 another and another. Those linkages altered when they were exposed to the healing intention. Wow, that's deep. But then the other thing you extrapolated from this this heavy because my mother did this. Sorry, mom, if I'm outing you right now, but, um, that it can also go the other way, that it's not, it can be hurtful so that the same oh, principle yes. applies to like, you hear these tales of slaves, like if somebody was treating them bad, they would run a voodoo thing on them and the person would get sick and it'd be like, if you stop it, <laughs> you know, and it's like, so you can also curse as well yes. as bless. Yes, it goes. It can be negative. Uh, one of the very early, going all the way back, a guy named Barry in France in 1968 was looking at going both ways. That is, he could take bacteria and could you, or, or fungus, and could you make it do better or make it do worse? And he discovered people could do both. Wow. So, and that's where the idea of the voodoo negative eye or the curse. Or the, the evil, evil eye, eye or all, yeah. you know, depending again which culture you're talking about, the same idea that negative intention also has a negative effect, 
positive intention has a positive effect. Wow. It's like it's like what Star Wars is talking about, the force. You have <clears throat> Vader and you have Luke. Yes. You know. So my mom told us that somebody was doing something very bad. And my dad and my uncle wanted to do something very bad to this person. And my mom said, no, there's another way. And she told me the next day when I found out about this, she said, if something ever, if someone ever does something, you know, really heinous to you, never take retribution. You picture them clearly, and then you picture a fog coming up behind them, and then you can't see them anymore until all you can see is fog. And that person died within six months of cancer. And I was like, <laughs> now my dad, who doesn't believe in anything mystical, I said, well, what about mom? He goes, well, I know people shouldn't mess around with your mother. I was like, man, <laughs> you don't get to have it both ways, dude. Like, no. Your mother oh, sounds like a very insightful woman. <laughs> she, uh, she quit doing stuff. She, uh, there was a certain point I remember. I wish I could remember which age it was. But some things happened. And you know, there's a tab to pay for whatever you do. I happen to think she got in alignment with this person's bad karma and that she just kind of fanned the flames <laughs> and then took them on out. But yeah, and she probably was doing this with some other people too. But um, yeah, she stopped. <laughs> but she's a super psychic, super. Mm -hmm. My sister, like all, and it's all about this intention, as you said. Yes. That's the whole thing, you know. Yeah, we know, it's for instance, Roger Nelson, who has the Global Consciousness Project. Uh, also somebody you should interview. Roger has shown that where there is a con coherence of intentioned awareness, Princess Diana's death, a tsunami in Japan, Chernobyl, that sort of thing, where there is something that draws the collective awareness of large numbers of people, there is a and a, there is a coalescence of intentioned awareness that random number generators that he's got scattered all over the world they go non-random and so we literally are creating mm. reality with consciousness <laughs> and it is the result of a collective consciousness and also uh, multi-generational yeah Absolutely. Wow. I know that from like uh, stuff that I'm having to heal in my life that, you know, goes to my dad, his dad, my mom's dad. There it just keeps going back. And I just oh. woke up and inherited a lot of this shit. <laughs> but fortunately, they've helped me sort it out and unpack it and try to throw away what, oh. you know, break what religious people were called generational curses. <laughs> you know? yes. I'm like, it's just all semantics. We're getting hung up on so many semantics. And I'm like, man, like you said before, like all these religions are basically protocols. They're like scientific protocols and That's they continue exactly to work. That's why they work yes. throughout the generations. And it's just semantics saying, oh, that this is wrong and that one's right. It's like, yes. They're all, yes, that actually is, that is a very good, uh, religions are protocols to open to non-local consciousness. Mm -hmm. In various ways. And I want to yeah. know all of them and the non-religious ones. 
Oh, yes. Because it's like the buffet. I want to have every type of chicken that every person on the planet, you know what? I want peanut butter chicken from Ghana. I want curry chicken from Jamaica and from India and from Thailand. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, to to that illusion, that, that analogy you're making, no matter how you cook it, it's still chicken. It's still chicken. It's intention. Yeah, I was going to be our daughter's name was Kavanaugh, which I mis- mispronounced for years, Kavana. I got it from an Abraham Joshua Heschel book. And he talked about, it's a Hebrew word that means intention. It struck me so hard. He was talking about the reason we can't judge another person is because we don't have enough information. Only God has enough information to judge yeah. their intention and their history. And it yeah. just hit me like an arrow. She's from India. We started calling her Kavi, just as for short. And turns out that's an Indian name that means poetess or songstress. So we ended up giving her the Indian name. But that's where it originally mm-hmm. was. It was Kavana, which I yes. think is that it's the linchpin for me. You know, so when I <laughs> when I found your videos with Mishlove, I was like, man, this is the dude. <laughs> Because I wanted it coming from the non-religious point. Like, I'm not, I would be a heretic of any religion. Christianity, probably. Yeah. Be a Christian heretic is probably what you would Me call it. Me too. Right? But I love that when you said, I'm data, man. I'm all about data. I was like, but you're saying the same thing where I was coming yeah. from. And so but, it's such a relief to meet you, man. You know, meditation, you can do a completely non-religious. In fact, I teach a form of meditation which is entirely based on the research but if you think about it what you have in religions is our empirical sciences that developed over hundreds or thousands of years because people observe that if you do this that happens mm, yeah it works be so still empiric- and know that empirical I'm sciences their protocols yeah. developed by observational empirical science yeah, that's what, I, and that's how I look. I hope they get rejoined because, you know, the first time I ever, I, when I tried to meditate, it wasn't from learning from someone else, which is my first mistake. And so, you know, I couldn't quiet the monkey mind, and uh, which you learn that that's something that everybody goes through. The first time I successfully meditated was in a very long prayer. I was praying. And then it went on, and then I was somewhere else, and then a, a long period of time passed, and it felt like a very short period of time. And when I came out and I noticed what the time was, I was like, that's the first time I ever meditated. But it started with prayer. So you see mm-hmm. it in the Bible, it's be still and know that I am God. Mm-hmm. Or they went off to the mountain to pray. They were going off to meditate and yes. just commune with this consciousness, the Holy Spirit, whatever the semantics you want to call it, (laughs) right? Yeah, I can see it. I was like, What you realize when you get through the dogmas and the scriptures, this is all the same stuff. It just develops differently in different cultures because it speaks to certain cultural parameters. And But when you get down to it, it's all chicken. That's right. It's every, I look at it as a diamond with it's, it's as many facets as there are spirits or humans. 
Yeah. And each facet of it. And so it's the whole, t- it's the totality of it. So this isn't wrong. You turn it this way and the light comes through. You turn it this yes. way. It's like, yeah. Yes. We need all of it. I need all of it. Even the negative somehow, which is a real hard thing yes. to swallow. You know, yes. that's a tough one. But how you have spring without winter. Sorry, everything's got to die and freeze. It sucks. But that's, you got to take it, you know? Yes. Uh, well, thank you, man. So I I would love to have you on for two more hours, but I got to go help my wife with the kids. And uh, I really appreciate you giving us so much of your time. My pleasure, guys. Uh, Bless you, Wish man. you well. Would you please let me know when you put it up so that we'll put the URL on my websites? Oh, yes. And thank you for that. My pleasure. And I'll be reaching out to try to uh, see how my remote viewing <laughs> yeah. works. Okay. I meditate every day for the past decade, so I'm excited to try it. I'd like to do that, too. (laughs) Thank you so much, and we'll let you know. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next time. All right. You take care. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye, sir. Bye-bye. Osiris. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.